Well, good morning. Listening to you worship is beautiful. I, I love coming and, and worshiping with you every morning or every Sunday morning. And one of the things I was just afraid of, I think I said this in the second service uh, last week, but that we would lose that going to two services, and we have not. I, I, I love the spirit in this place. I love the way that, that, that we lift our, our, our souls to the Lord. Um, if, if this is your first time with us, my name is Cody Alvarez, and um, I would love to meet you after the service over by the welcome desk. But let's dive into the word. Let's, let's pray together and ask, ask his blessing. God, we need you now. We need your spirit to open our eyes to your truth. God, and I pray that, that you would empower us to eradicate sin from our lives, that we would offer no safety, no quarter, that we would, that we would not shrink away in shame because of our sin like I know I do whenever you reveal, but instead we would press in. God, I pray. I pray that we would come to you in, in boldness, like Hebrews talks about, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus. We've been sprinkled clean. Lord, I pray as we enter into this text, which is hard, that we would not shy away, but that we would come to you in boldness for the forgiveness of sin. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Galatians again, and we are continuing our series, Captivated. In Christ, we are no longer held captive by sin. Instead, we've been set free from the law, and we get to live captivated by the love of Jesus. And here, here's, here's the thing. This is why we've carried this thing captivated throughout. What captivates your heart will be evident in the way that you live your life. What captivates your heart will be evident in the way that you live your life. Um, like I said, we're gonna be in Galatians 5, if you wanna get there. We'll be in 5, 19 through 26. And what we'll do this morning is we're gonna look at the works of the flesh versus what the Holy Spirit, the fruit that he produces in our lives. So this week's all gonna be works of the flesh. So just... Buckle up, get ready. Next week's going to be all fruit of the Spirit. So, But I, I didn't want to just blow through it. I want to spend time and, and look deeply into these things. So here's, here's the what is true statement if you're a note taker. If you're saved, there will be evidence of the Holy Spirit living through you. That's, that's what is true. If you're saved, there will be evidence of the Holy Spirit living through you. How much? The Bible doesn't say. It just says that there will be evidence. So what do we do with this? We are to be fruit inspectors of our lives, being honest with ourselves about whether or not the fruit in our life is evidence of Jesus, of evidence of us living for Jesus, or whether or not it's evidence of us living for the enemy. So let's look at our text. <clears throat> Verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident, Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, 
rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus Christ, have been crucified, have, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be, uh, become conceited in provoking one another and envy with one another. All right, so this morning we're going to look at the works of the flesh and the warning that in verses 19 through 22. So Paul, again, he goes to this term flesh in verse 19. And just to, 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 to remind you, flesh represents the worldly sinful things that are against the will of God. That, that's what the flesh is. Paul contrasts the sinful works done by humanity with the work of the Holy Spirit, that's God, and what he produces in us. The works of the flesh are open rebellion against God. So look again at verse 19. We've seen this word already in, in, in Galatians. It says the works of the flesh are evident. Let's look at this word evident. Evident means in plain sight or in open sight. These outward actions, these are the outward actions of a person. So these things, these works are things that are in plain sight to God. Um, and possibly in plain sight to people. So no matter what, somebody's seeing it, they're in plain sight. It's not like we're hiding these things. So one, one, one thing that um, I hear so much is like, like, why, like, why do you care kind of deal? Like, it's not hurting anybody. I'm not hurting anybody. They're not hurting anybody. Just, just, just leave them alone. Well, that's, we're about to evaluate that statement because that is one of the number one justifications I hear for sin. So let's, let's work this out real quick. So my, my sin's not hurting anybody. I want to show you how it affects God, how it affects the church, and how it affects the lost world. So first, God, your sin breaks God's heart. I don't know if you realize that God is intricately and closely connected to each and every one of us. He cares about us. That's why he sent his son. Jesus, God, is the lover of your soul, and sin negatively affects him. The book of Hosea illustrates how this is done. In, in Hosea, God represents Hosea and we represent Hosea's wife. God commands Hosea to go marry a prostitute. Yeah, that, that's not one we really hear in Sunday school a whole lot, right? Go marry this prostitute, and, and the prostitute represents us, that we, we so easily and willingly give ourselves, we, we trade God for something else. And so he marries, he marries the lady, her name's Gomer, beautiful lady, beautiful name at least, right? Gomer. 
Um, she's unfaithful to Hosea. She has children with other men, and Hosea accepts the children. Ho Hosea constantly brings her back. There's one point in the book where she goes and sells herself as a prostitute, though married. Hosea goes and buys her out of that prostitution. Hosea's heart is broken, but he still continually pursues his bride. That's the picture of God with me and you when we sin. His heart's broken, but he still pursues the bride. Your sin isn't hurting anybody, really. God paints himself as a husband whose heart is broken each and every time we sin, as if we are a wife who is committing infidelity against him. And that, that's kind of like something that we, we like separate ourselves from. So let's, let's make it a little closer. Imagine that was your spouse. Like not, not one of these, like feel that emotion that that's, that's the person you love who is openly and, and often going and taking other lovers. And maybe you're a little young or maybe you're not married and you don't quite get that feeling. Well, imagine you find out that about your parents. Imagine the heartbreak. That's God's posture when we sin. I would be devastated. You would be devastated. And that is the picture that sin does to the king of the universe. And I want to just remind you, this king is the passionate lover of your soul like no one else is. He loves you more than you do. But let's, let's keep evaluating the claim that your sin isn't hurting anybody. Let's, let's think about the church. Your sin, when you, when you are living in sin, your sin will affect the body of Christ and often will, will lead other people into sin with you. And this is what Jesus has to say about that in Matthew 18, 6. This is talking about those who believe. You'll see it on the screen. But whoever causes one of these little ones, we want to think about those as children. We are the little ones. And it causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus does not have a nonchalant attitude about our sin, does he? We see in this book, a group of people who were sinning, these legalists, these of the circumcision party. And they go to a, a city called Antioch. They're not quite in Galatia yet. And we see them, they lead Peter astray. Peter's the dude that has the confession that Jesus is the, the Christ, the son of the living God. Upon that confession, God will build his church. Peter is the one who walks on water. Peter is the one who preaches the sermon at Pentecost. That, that dude, he, gets, he drifts into sin with this, this circumcision party. Paul's right-hand man, Barnabas, what does he do? Drifts into sin. And Paul goes on to say the entire church at Antioch goes into sin. And because we have this letter, we're assuming that this church in Galatia has been drawn into this sin. So you're telling me your sin doesn't affect anybody? Your sin affects God, and your sin 
Understand you are a part of a body. Your sin will affect the body. We all generally get how cancer works, right? It just spreads throughout. And if you don't treat it, if you don't cut it off, if you don't cut it out, what's it gonna do? It's gonna kill you. It's gonna kill me if we allow sin to, uh, cancer to go untreated, and that is sin in the body of Christ. I love Lonesome Dove. Gus. I like old westerns, and Gus is one of the best characters in any western. Gus gets gangrene in his leg. He gets shot in his leg, and it's not a fatal wound. But Gus is unwilling to have his leg taken off. And he's too proud to deal with the issue, and he'd rather die than deal with it. That's how I feel like churches sometimes, that how, how our posture gets with sin. We'd rather die in our pride than deal with that sin. You see, churches in America who have, in the words of Jesus, lost their lampstand. We hear them talk about this in Revelation. They've lost their witness. They've lost their testimony because they've refused to deal with sin. They've either chosen to outright accept the sin or ignore the sin. Do you know what ignoring sin is? It's acceptance. The result of allowing sin to run rampant in the church is that a church will lose its testimony. The bride of Christ will bring, on, will bring shame on her beloved. That's what will happen when we allow sin. The result of the church not dealing with sin is that your children will grow up seeing your hypocrisy and will see the hypocrisy in the church. And you know what they're doing in droves work right now? Walking away from the church. That's because sin's allowed to go unchecked in the church. The result of sin running rampant is that the church becomes apologist for their sins and the sins that they allow instead of an apologist for Jesus Christ. Sin in the church is not a small thing. But go on believing that your sin doesn't affect anybody. Your sin unchecked will kill the testimony of this church. Your sin going unchecked will kill the testimony to your family and your friends. These are the people you should care most about coming to Jesus. But let's, let's take this one step further, the effects of open sin, based on this claim that my sin's not hurting anybody. Think about the ones outside of the church. Think about the lost. You living in sin in front of them is you drawing them to the lake of fire that burns with sulfur once they pass the eternity, pass into eternity. What's Jesus say about what they will experience? Let's think about these people. Jesus' mouth talks about this will be their experience. Torture, darkness, fire, screams with no end. Understand that is our contribution to their lives when we sin openly. And I'm not trying to advocate private sin. The lost should be tripping over our bodies all the way to hell. We should be anchors grabbing onto their ankles, pleading with them to believe in Jesus. And when we sin with them, 
It's worse than being silent altogether because we're telling them that we don't even really believe that there's a God standing there at the end of our lives who will judge. To whom this individual will have to give an account. When we sin with our friends and our family, we're preaching a false gospel that there's not really a God who's not really going to judge. Again, I'm going to ask you to think about is your sin, can we conclude that our sin isn't hurting anybody? And I'm guilty too. But I've got one final person for you to think about your sin hurting. The claim that your sin doesn't affect anybody, think about Jesus. Jesus was crushed for your public sin and for your private sin, was he not? The gospel teaches us that Jesus came to us in our sin. He took our sin and the righteousness that he has is what he's given to us. The righteous one of God, God in the flesh, was beaten, he was stripped, he was bruised, he was stripped naked, he was laughed at, and he was nailed to a cross. He was stabbed with a Roman spear, all to pay for our sin with his blood. So no matter, no matter what angle you're looking at this from, you cannot conclude that your sin or their sin's not hurting anybody. Sin is serious. It's just not true to believe that. Your sin has affected God. Your sin will affect the church. Your sin will affect the lost world. And we know that Jesus, for our sin, bled and died. So let's, let's, keep, let's look at our text some more. I just, I just wanted to, before we go any further, I, I feel like people just say, ah, I know we're talking about sin, but it's not like my sin's hurting anybody. Now, now let's look at these individual sins that are named. This is not by any means an extensive list that Paul gives. Matter of fact, you see in different books, Paul gives different lists. You see different lists of sin in, in the New Testament. I think Paul, what he's doing is, like a good preacher, he has been reported something specific about his, that church, and he is responding to these specific things going on in that specific church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look through each one of these things, and we're going to inspect our life and see what things we need to eradicate, what things we need to plead with the Holy Spirit to change in us. And this morning, while I was um, going through this, work, working on it again, the Lord revealed one to me. Like that's just, he just starts showing you stuff. So that's what we're gonna do. So let's look at verse 19. Let's get reacquainted. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, uh, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies, these and, and things like these. So these are, these are the things that Paul's putting in this, this sinful list. So the first thing listed here is sexual immorality. The Greek word is pornea. This is the idea of illicit sexual actions like fornication. So any sex that's not in the confines of marriage, as well as, and probably very specifically, por, uh, uh, prostitution. These things are the works of Satan. Pornea is where we get our word pornography. We all hear that, right? And when we talk about pornography, we act like it's just a problem for men. 
And I'm about to show you through statistics that it is a problem for the whole church. So I've pulled these from Mission Frontier. Here are just a few of the statistics found. 11 is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography. And 94% of children will see pornography by the age 14. 56% of American divorces involve one party having an, and it has quotes around this, obsessive interest in pornographic websites. So if you want to kill your marriage, do that. 68% of church-going men, church-going men view pornography on a regular basis. Statistics are what they are. 68%. Of young Christian adults, this is not just men. This is why it's a whole church problem. Adults 18 to 24, 76 actively, 76% actively search for porn. So that's men and women ages 18 to 24. 33% of women under the age of 25 search for porn at least once a month. We, we want to make it just an issue for men. It's not. Only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they've never watched porn, while 87% of Christian women, women have watched pornography. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say that they watch pornography at least once a month. We're dealing with this because statistics are what statistics are, and more than likely, there are some in this room dealing with this. If pornography is something that you do, something you participate in, something you watch, you must repent. You must stop. This is the works of the flesh. And your participation in pornography, whether it's on a TV show you watch, because we want to we make it exclusive to um, websites, some TV show you watch, or if it's on the web, you are participating in creating the sex industry. And you need to hear this. This is, this is the connection to pornea. You are participating in prostitution. Do you understand? Your participation is participation in prostitution. In the context of the early church, prostitution was connected to sex slavery. And in our modern context, the porn industry and sex slavery are, as one author says, inseparable. Many people think that they are separate issues, that sex slavery is something that happens in faraway countries. That's just not true. In an article from Fight the New Drug, you'll find research that shows estimated 4.8 million people are trapped or forced into sexual exploitation globally. That's slavery. Do you understand that? More than one in five victims of sex trafficking are children because any commercial sex act with a minor 
is illegal defined as, that's defined as sexual trafficking, the products and the distribution of, of child uh, sexual abuse material, also referred to as child pornography, often qualifies as a form of sex trafficking. And you're like, well, I'm not, I'm not watching that. The research proves that any of these websites that have pornography always has children in it. Sex trafficking by your click generates an estimated $99 billion annually. And that's hard to track too, because it's underground. The article shows that 63% of underaged sex trafficking victims said that they've been advertised and sold online. So why are we talking about this for so long? Because the research also shows that 70% of porn consumers who do learn about the mistreatment in the porn industry and how they are contributing to sex slavery around the world, when they, when they find out, when they're made aware, they end up becoming activists for these men, women, and children. So stop. Let's just stop. It's one of those things, like, you think your private sin's not hurting anybody? There's $99 billion worth of proof that you're wrong. Stop. Run to the Father. Change your mind. That means repent. And there is grace for you. Don't draw away in your shame, but run to him. And if you're interested in participating in fighting against pornea and sex trafficking, go to the, the website unboundwaco.org. It's somewhere that you can physically and practically get connected. Miss Debbie over here, she, she works there and she can help you get involved. But for the love of God, for the love of your fellow man, please stop participating in pornography. Our next word is impurity. This is quite a bit broader term, and it covers moral uncleanness in one's thought life, speech, or action. The Jewish mindset thought about things in categories like clean and unclean, holy and unholy. Um, that's how the temple was set up. Like we think of uh, things in categories of good and bad, right? That's, that's good, that's bad. And that's, that's how they thought in categories of pure and impure. So this is, this is kind of a broad category, but here's a good rule of thumb whenever you're trying to figure out, is this thing pure or impure? In Christ, we've been made pure by the blood of Jesus. And what business does a believer have in participating in the things that, are, that Jesus has died for, right? So here's, here's your rule of thumb. Ask yourself, about the action, am I enjoying or laughing at something Jesus died for? Am I enjoying or laughing at something Jesus died for? Are these things on this TV program something I'm enjoying? Is that something that Jesus died for? Do I feel like this thing is proper 
for a saint to do? Is this speech proper for a saint to say? And if the answer is no, impure. If the answer is yes, pure. I mean, that's, that's, that's what this is talking about. So let's, let's keep going. Let's keep plugging away. Look back at the text. The next word is sensuality. This idea is unashamed boldness in sexual sin or about past sexual sins. When we see everywhere right now drag shows at elementary schools, I listened to a part of a sermon this morning where the guy was advocating for that. It's, um, we see brazen LGBTQ stuff. We, let me help you. We shouldn't be surprised when people outside of the church are living in sin. Like, right, that shouldn't surprise us. They are lost and they are dead in their sin and trespasses. That's what Ephesians tells us. They are clearly in pain and they are seeking acceptance and love. They've just bought a lie. And we should look at them with compassion and seek them out to share the love of Jesus with. I know a man um, who is now a pastor who was led to Christ out of this movement. He was at one point the editor of the largest paper in the state of Texas that advocates this. He now leads people to Jesus. I've done street evangelism with this man, and he's a lion for the faith. But what if somebody was just too afraid to go talk to him? They were just too repulsed by his sin. Remember, your sin's repulsive too. We have to, they believe the lie that, that Satan has that they'll find fulfillment and love in this alternative lifestyle. But here's my challenge for us. I feel like we believe the lie that they don't want to hear it, that they're too far gone to be saved. If you feel this way, you must repent. If you feel like they're too far gone. You must put on the armor of God and go to war. But this is not written for unbelievers. This is written for believers. So I don't know what brazen sexual sin that might be glaring to you in your life. But the call is repentance. That's the call. The next category for sin is idolatry and sorcery. And you're like, oh, that's something out on the other side of the world. Hey, if you're a parent or a grandparent, you need to zone into this. Witchcraft is the fastest growing, one of the fastest growing religions in America. This is not something being dealt with in just Africa. This is something being dealt with with your children. I worked at a church. One of, one of the families that had, was at one point in leadership and they were dealing with astronomy and they were dealing with, another family was dealing with these crystals. Like, you need to, you need to understand that the sorcery, the sorcery is related to witchcraft and the research out of Trinity Seminary shows that many of these new converts to paganism are coming out of the church. That's where they're coming from. So 
How are we letting this stuff into our home? I'm not going after TV shows. I'm going after your, your, you allowing the Zodiac stuff and, and crystals. Let me, let me explain what these things are. Zodiac symbols or astronomy is the belief that the stars somehow have the power to overcome things in your life or they set your mood for what's coming. This is common enough that I would be surprised if at least one person or more often in this room pays attention to what their, what their zodiac symbol is for the month. This is ancient paganism, and it doesn't matter how your family or you decide to Christianize it. It is sorcery. It's witchcraft. Christians practice crystals, and this is everywhere on the internet. This is, this is, this is a thing. I know for some of us, we're like, what are you talking about? Just, it's a thing. It's a new form of spiritualism that's showing up in the Christian church. And the basic idea is by putting different types of stones in rooms, it'll affect your mood as well as the outcome of events that happen in that room. This is really no different than taking a potion and believing that this witch will somehow be able to change your life. Like this, it's sorcery. Many of you might be feeling frustrating that we're talking about this, but this is one of the big fights coming for the church in America. It's already here, and most of us have no idea that it's here. But just know your youth, the young adults, they're searching, and they're drinking from a fountain that will never satisfy them. And we can't be repulsed by their sin we have to lean in as Christ leaned into our sin. Jesus was not repulsed by us, and we cannot be repulsed by them. Jesus is the model. The use of potions or crystals, hoping that some power or force outside of you will change your mood or situation, is idolatry. God is the one who moves all things. So I'm just going to keep plugging along. Let's look at verse 20. Here's a couple different types of sin. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. These are the things that kill a church. Those other things are kind of real personal sins. These are, these, these are the kind of things that kill a church in a body. Enmity is a word that I don't know that I've ever used in like a regular conversation, so I had to really do a word study on that one. Enmity is better understood as um, a person who makes many enemies. Their posture is such that they are very combative. This, if, if you are one who makes enemies easily and hates often, this one's for you. Strife, the next one. The idea of being constantly argumentative. 
Unfortunately, this marks many believers, and we are not repulsed by this one. This is one that we've, we've very much Christianized, and we feel good about it. If this is you, repent. Next one is jealousy. Getting frustrated when someone gets attention you feel like you deserve at work or in your family or, or in the church. And I'm also going to put envy and rivalries in this category. If you, some of us do really struggle with this and the calls repent. Fits of anger, this one's self-explanatory. I remember I grew up in a church where one of our deacons was an angry man and he often both in church and in private, because I was friends with his kids, just lost control. And nobody said anything except for, well, that's just the way he is. And you know what he said? That's just the way I am. Yeah, you come to Jesus as you are, but you are not okay to stay that way. We're to put everything in submission to Jesus. The, 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 the next one is... Um, division and dissension. This is someone who sows discord in the church. This is what we see the legalists and the Judaizers doing. But let's make this practical. Are you somebody who constantly wants to play the devil's advocate so that you can undermine the person speaking? Are you somebody who constantly goes and has one-off conversations so that you can undermine whoever was in charge? Are, are you sowing discord and a way that you know that, that you're doing it is so that it makes you look better. If that's you, repent. Finally, drunkenness. I believed growing up that to drink alcohol is a sin. That's the, the culture that I grew up in. That's just not what this text is saying. It's saying to be drunk is a sin. And I'm going to put in this categorically high things that, things that make you lose control of your faculties. But I will say, if you drink and your conscience tells you it's a sin, or if it's illegal based on your age, then drinking is a sin. But that's just simply not what it's talking about. But if you are one who is constantly being drunk, or if you get drunk, stop, repent. If you're constantly getting high, stop, repent, get help. Because these are not the things of Christ. Verse 21, Paul goes on. He again talks about a sexual sin one time. And uh, he says, and these, and things like these, and he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul warns us that people who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, crud, that means I'm out of luck. Is that what it's saying? Because your pastor is a sinner, by the way. Well, let's, let's evaluate the statement real quick. A more wooden literal translation reads, those who make a practice of doing such things. And it doesn't quantify how many of these things, but those who make a practice of doing such things. Many of your Bibles, if you'll look right there, it has a footnote where it has that wooden translation at the bottom. So we who are in Christ, we will sin. The flesh sometimes wins. But Paul, what he's doing is he's warning you. Like, that's why we just spent so much time and leaned into this passage. 
you have to be a fruit inspector. While good works themselves are not the source for right standing with God, they are the outworking of life in the Spirit. And God gives good works as a basis for us to, to judge the authenticity of our own faith. Not for me to judge the authenticity of your faith, but for you to judge yourself. Faith and morality, they're just inseparable. They're linked. I think the application for all of us is to look through these and ask the Holy Spirit, reveal to me what this is. Reveal where I am caught up in one of these sins and help me to repent of that thing. It's simple. But I know for me, often whenever I, shame and, and sin are just right there together. And whenever I find sin, I draw back away from God into my shame when I should be leaning in for grace. Christ's love is not cold and calculating like our love is. He's warm to us. He, it's his nature to draw into us when we do sin. Jesus doesn't withdraw from us in a state of disgust because of our filth. Rather, he comes to us. He came to us. If you feel like you can't come to Christ because you feel spiritually filthy, that feeling, it comes from you and it is a whisper from the Satan. Jesus says only the sick are in need of a physician. Last thing I'll say, your kid's runny nose and your kid's poopy diaper are disgusting. And if I'm holding your kid, I will give it back to you. But when it was my kid, I'm not saying it wasn't disgusting, but I leaned in and I took care of what I needed to take care of. Jesus does what's necessary. Jesus does not withdraw from our shame. He does not withdraw from our filth. He doesn't pass us off. He leans in. Church, hear me. Christ is so much kinder than we give him credit for. And he's not done with us when we sin. Your sin doesn't push Jesus away. The heart of the king enthroned in heaven, full of majesty and glory, is that he would press in and seek out the prodigal son, that he would leave the 99 for the one and praise God because I'm often the one. If you recognize you're far off from God this morning, go to the throne of grace in boldness because you have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. Offer, grace is being offered to you. Offer your sin and leave it there. All that's required is a, is a gentle, is a repentant heart. Our God is gentle and lowly and his heart is abounding in love and forgiveness. If you will, let's bow our head. Next week, we're gonna look at the, the fruit of the spirit in contrast to the works of the flesh, but I wanna show you that the work of the flesh, or the, 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 the work of the flesh is not better. 
But the, the fruit of the Spirit is better. The fruit of the Spirit is the opposite. Sensuality is not real love. The fruit of the Spirit offers love. There's no joy in discord and discontent. The fruit of the Spirit is joy, peace, patience, kindness. What, what you are, will give up in repentance, what's offered in Christ is so much better. So let's pray. If you don't know Jesus, I would love, I'm going to be down front. If there's a sin you want to repent of, repent of I'm going to be down front. I'd love to pray with you. But the band...